Hello, everybody, and welcome back to My Life is a Montage. This is the show where we talk about music and how it fits in our lives. I'm Keith Campbell. I'm joined today by Ian Shakey here. Ian, how are you today? I am fabulous. This is a lovely break from remodeling my kitchen. So (laughs) I'm sure this will be in episode 3000 of this series. But uh, for now, I'm glad to think about music and what it's brought to me. Excellent. So for uh, for today's uh, episode, what have you selected as part of your montage? So we're going to take a ride through the mid '90s with uh, 1979 from Smashing Pumpkins. Wonderful. A little bit about the song: it was released on the Pumpkins' biggest album, Melancholy and the Infant Sadness, that came out October 24th, 1995. It was released as the second single from the album on January 23rd of '96. It's the Pumpkins' highest charting single ever. It reached number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100, number one on the mainstream rock, mainstream rock tracks and the modern rock tracks charts. And the album itself debuted at number one on the Billboard char- charts and sold over 5 million copies. Ian, of the, of the singles that came off of this album, are you surprised that 1979 was the big hit considering that if anybody thinks of Billy Corgan, they think, oh, the Rat in a Cage guy. Uh, I'm actually not surprised that 1979 ended up being the big hit mostly because it was the one time that Smashing Pumpkins played crossover. It was the most adult album friendly, you know, album rock friendly uh, Mm. song that the, that the group ever had, or at least in those first three records. Uh, And so I think it was, a good song to get out of uh, the not quite grunge, not quite metal shtick that uh, Billy had kind of built for the band over that uh, couple of years. And so, you know, that crossover was not surprising at all. Right. So to give you a sense of where the band was, this was the Pumpkins third album. And this comes out at a really pivotal time for, Rock music in general. This is 1995, just a year prior, Kurt Cobain uh, killed himself. And so there's this big kind of hole in what's known as alternative music uh, around that time. And, you know, everybody would have assumed, I think Pearl Jam at the time was tied up in their fight against Ticketmaster. And so there was a huge hole that, that a band was waiting to be drawn into. And thinking about, you know, the Pumpkins career up to that point, Pretty much every time they had put out an album, within six months, it had been completely eclipsed by whatever Nirvana had done. Um, you know, Gish came out in May of 1991. It was followed four months later by Nevermind, which completely blew up the world and changed what rock music was at the time. Uh, Siamese came out in July of 1993, and then that's followed up not only by In Utero in September, but also the airing of the uh, MTV Unplugged special that Nirvana put out in uh, December of that year. And actually, that runner-up uh, status played pretty heavily on Billy Corgan uh, as a songwriter. You know, in doing the research for this, I listened to a, um, a podcast called Why Not Now. It's a, it's a podcast about what sets you off on creative directions and that sort of thing. Um, and I got into the Nevermind Overtaking Gish is a big in- inflection point for Corgan, uh, he, he mentioned that he had gotten what he thought was success and, you know, done what he thought, you know, was supposed to happen with Gish. And then 
bam, never mind. Bam, uh, Pearl Jam's 10 comes out. And so he's he tells the host about, you know, kind of the moment where he's, you know, he's been like giving away his possessions and kind of doing all the things that you would think that somebody would be doing if they were harboring suicidal thoughts. Um, you know, and he, he said that, you know, there was a real strong moment of him sitting, looking out of his window and going, well, today I'm either going to jump or I'm going to just throw everything that I possibly can at this and hope that it happens. You know, and that leads to Siamese Dream. And actually, you know, in, in thinking about this, you know, there are parallels with Siamese Dream and Weezer's Pinkerton. And that, you know, you have a band that comes kind of from seemingly out of nowhere doing throwback-ish, not quite in with the cultural zeitgeist rock. And then, you know, they get that little bit of success. And then their second album is, you know, even more meticulously crafted and even more personal. You know, obviously, the, where those paths diverge is that Gish didn't have a huge single like Weezer did on theirs, and Siamese Dream way outstripped um, Gish in success compared to Pinkerton with uh, the Blue Album. Yeah, I think uh, one of the other things to think about with that kind of uh, Gish to Siamese Dream to uh, melancholy is that this also followed kind of the uh, dysfunction of the band as it mm. grew, uh, where melancholy was you know it was a double CD. Yeah. Uh, it took up it took up two spaces in your CD case, <laughs> and it was and it was long and it was there was a lot to it. But in the background, uh, uh, if you followed the band at all, you knew that this was also when. Uh, drummer Jimmy Chamberlain was uh, in the throes of dealing with his heroin addiction. This was when uh, Darcy and uh, James Eha were starting to uh, want to I- I express themselves more in the band. Mm. And, you know, it, whereas with Siamese Dream, famously, you know, Billy played every note on that, on what right. ended up getting to uh, the actual CD. So, you know, you have this big, boisterous, ostentatious record that comes out that has some really, some really intimate moments, uh, has some really good instrumental stuff to it, mm-hmm. but then also has the Rat in the Cage song and just some stuff that just goes, you know, uh, about as hardcore as a oh, yeah. mainstream alternative rock band would go at that point. And, and to follow with that, it was also, we talk about Nirvana, we talk about the Weezer, uh, but you also have to remember that in 95, 96 was also when uh, the return of Britpop happened when with yeah. Oasis, with Oasis hitting this, hitting uh, the airwaves in 95 with Wonderwall. Yeah. And also uh, the, the surge of electronica where, right. you know, and so you, if you think about it, you can also see that that's where Smashing Pumpkins goes from there. It's like, Oh great. Now we need to follow another zeitgeist. And that's <laughs> when you end up with, that's when you end up with, you know, their next album, uh, which was, I don't even want to talk about it. Okay. So here's where we're going to diverge because I, I'm a big booster of a door. And I actually, you know, in looking at the band's catalog as a whole, I think you can see signposts for the next thing in each of the albums. Weirdly, mm-hmm. 
you know, I think if you look at songs like, you know, 1979, which is, you have this big expressive drummer who has all the technique in the world and he, he programmed a loop for this one, right? You know, you have songs like 1979, you have songs like Love, you have songs like, I think by Starlight well, is very much a harbinger of what they'd end up sounding like on a door. And you even saw that before with Siamese Dream on Siamese Dream with, uh, you know, with things like Geek USA har- mm. as harbing- as harbingers for butterfly wings. You know, right. so there were definitely. You're right. They they are definitely a uh, a band that uh, didn't make massive jumps from mm. well they did but d- you could always hear what the thinking what the thinking was and it. it it's one of the things I actually still love about the pumpkins is that there was an evolution as they went through their, their ups and downs. I think you can even see the seeds for that in the intro to Hummer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's that um, kind of like scratched loop at the beginning and that's, that's mm-hmm. a real good marker for what's going to come over the next four or five albums from them. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. So you were mentioning uh, regarding the turmoil of the band, you know, looping back to that and also the the little brother syndrome that they had within, or that at least Corgan had within the music industry. Um, there's a quote from one of the interviews that he did, I believe, with the Chicago Tribune around the time of the record's release. And he said, let's approach this like it's our last album, because it either will be our last album or it'll be our last album as people know the Smashing Pumpkins. You know, both in terms of, you know, what you alluded to with what comes after and the fact that, in the tour supporting this album, Jimmy Chamberlain only goes and gets himself fired from the band. And so this album is the last time that the, this, that the band is known as this four mm-hmm. personnel at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, and that's going to be, that's a, actually some nice foreshadowing of what we're going to talk about in terms of uh, the montage point for this. Right. Uh, because it was uh, one, I don't want to portend too much, but <laughs> it was sad to see what was happening to the band that, you know, was uh, almost cliche from a rock and roll standpoint, um, hmm. but was, you know, just kind of, you see all this talent and all four of them had, uh, had a lot to give to rock and roll. And it, it would have been interesting to see, what had happened if the four of them had been able to stay together in one piece. Now, whether, whether that was possible considering the personalities and the, you know, the heads budding as, as we know now that was happening, uh, it, you know, you can always wonder what if, but <laughs> it's amazing that in a weird way, uh, Smashing Pumpkins were a lot more like Oasis than they ever wanted to think. <laughs> that's pretty solid <laughs> i mean just liam yeah. yeah the only problem was liam and noel made it did their you know did their fighting out in public while right you know billy and james and and jimmy and and darcy just struggled you know in their own dressing rooms. And, right, right. And so, and so it was, uh, you know, it's fascinating to think about that, especially considering, and, and you mentioned this with the little brother thing. I think one of the, uh, when I was researching not only the song, but actually going back through my own research about the band that I'd done in the past, 
uh, when the Pumpkins headlined Lollapalooza in '94. Right. Uh, they were they were really at the height of their powers, and Billy talked that night, uh, the night that I saw them, which was the last night of the tour uh, in Southern California. And Billy actually talked about their next album and how it was going to be a big hard rock album. And everyone was either going to love it or hate it, but they didn't give a damn. Okay. So this is while they're in the midst or getting ready, run into the studio Mm -hmm. and, and put down melancholy. Yep. The song, the song in question, 1979, almost did not make the record, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you know anything about what came out around, you know, in support of the record, they had, there's this famous picture of the whiteboard that they were, or the chalkboard that they were working from with all the tracks that they had either pieces of or fragments of. Um, I think there was something like 100 songs that went into consideration for or a hundred pieces of songs or a hundred, a hundred pieces of music at any rate were somewhere in the queue or somewhere in production for this. Um, one half of the production duo that worked on this uh, flood turns and goes to Billy goes, what's going on with this song? If it's not done tomorrow, um, we either finish the song or it's off the record. Um, so he went, th- went home that night, finished up the lyrics, did a demo, brought it back in and, you know, the, the producer goes, okay, great, make it happen. If, he, if he's not able to turn that around, that that piece of the band's history doesn't happen. Maybe the follow-up single, you know, in, in the chronology of what was released in terms of singles, it's it goes Bullet, 1979, then Zero. I don't know if Zero moves up and becomes the second single if they go with muzzle and then it's a whole entirely different landscape for them or one of the 70 songs that was you know part of the the uh, pasticcio medley which one of the b-sides for the zero single ends up stepping up and becoming that single but at any rate real sliding door moment in the production of the album at that point the the funny thing about the song is how it, my my mother used to laugh about bullet with butterfly wings and the, despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage line and how, you know, just uh, again, ostentatious is the word that I use when it comes to melancholy. But when you really look at the lyrics of 1979, they're all just so banal and it's, it's this suburban, it's this like, Disenchant, you know, disen, disenfranchisement, disenchantedness with uh, a kind of boring, uh, boring summer suburban lifestyle, and you kind of wonder if that comes out of Billy's, you know, Billy's own childhood, or if he's just writing, if he's just writing a story, and Mm. you know, it's more, it's more the latter, but it, it kind of it gets a little darker if you, the more you think about it than yeah. the song actually sounds. So 1979, Billy would have been 12. Um, right. And he has spoken pretty openly about kind of growing up in, in at best um, absentee, at worst abusive family. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if, you know, in the, in the writing of this, he's trying to, 
express almost the nostalgia for the childhood he didn't have, the childhood he wished mm-hmm. he had. Yeah. What I always thought about it when I heard the song and learned the lyrics was uh, it almost feels like the kind of opposite of a dazed and confused or a Mm. long, long, hot summer, or, you know, some of those eighties and early nineties, uh, comedies where it was like one day in the life of, uh, and a whole bunch of funny stuff happens or great stuff happens. And the, the story of the story of this song, you know, the story of 1979 with its, uh, you know, land of thousand gilts and port cement and we're restless, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't, they don't, that we don't even care as restless as we are, that kind of thing. It, it feels like, you know, the opposite of one of those, one of those things. And so that in a weird way, it doesn't fit with the rest of the album, but in tone, it fits perfectly with the rest of the album. Right. Right. I mean, the, the follow-up song to this is Tales of the Scorched Earth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, in the sequence right. of the album. Yeah, so you, you go from like this kind of blissed out, bored, you know, really light, summery electronic song to you know guitars opened up, full bore, and Billy screaming the entire song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> so. So, so you do you want to know where this fits in my life? <laughs> well, well, we, we we will get there. Uh, you did you did mention? I'm you know, sorry. No, no, it's fine. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier that you know one of the things that that kind of started to fill the the post grunge vibe or void uh, in 1995 is Britpop. So yeah, what's the story? Morning Glory comes out in 1995. Jagged Little Pill comes out in 1995. Um, Tupac's Me Against the World comes out. Tragic Kingdom, The Bends, Pulp's Different Class. Um, a lot of the Wu-Tang solo albums, um, Raekwon, Genius, and, uh, mm-hmm. and Dirty, all putting out albums that year. Um, White Zombies, Astro Creek 2000 comes out. And uh, Jules. Yeah, one of these things is not, <laughs> one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> 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 uh, 95 was a bit 95 was a big year for me it was a big year for music and mm. uh just as a a big year for music for me uh yeah. and i'm sure other people uh so this was at the height of my college radio days okay. uh when i was a when i was a dj and then also was in my first two years in journalism so okay. I was working in newspapers at the time. Um, so it, it is interesting to see how there was that transition from gr- there started to be that transition from grunge to the Britpop, the electronica. You had Alanis, who was you know all over the Billboard Hot 100, mm-hmm. but was initially pl- but was initially played only on the alternative stations. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jagged Little Pill was broken on K Rock in uh, in L A, which is the alternative station. Yeah, and the lead single for that is of a piece with you know kind of the grunge and post grunge mm-hmm. sound. Um, mm-hmm. You know, weirdly worked on and produced with the guy that would go on to produce the Aerosmith mid nineties albums. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll we'll overlook that. <laughs> <clears throat> so so. 
you mentioned that you're in the middle of journalism uh, and working in journalism. Uh, it's a big year for music for you. So where does the song fit in your montage? So this song fits in my montage in my first professional, uh, the fir- one of the first kind of roads that I went down as a professional. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, I had just, in 95, I was still in college radio. Uh, but I was also working full-time at my hometown newspaper. And so when I, uh, <clears throat> by 96, by the time Melancholy came out and then the tour came out, uh, following it, I was working, a, I was working as a, uh, full-time pop music critic, uh, for okay. my local paper, but also for Gannett, uh, the, the chain that owned USA Today and would use its papers across the country to fill its pages. Right. Uh, so I, with that being in Southern California, I covered and went to a lot of concerts uh, from 96 to 98, which was awesome. But what this has to do with uh, Smashing Pumpkins is in December of 1996, this is the night that I will never forget, uh, I stood on the floor of the Great Western Forum in Inglewood, California, uh, which is unfortunately going to get torn down soon, uh, and listened to Billy Corrigan ruin his reputation with me. And he did it okay. during 1979. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so so please, goes, please continue. Yeah, so if you go to, uh, if you're the kind of person who goes to setlist.fm and looks up old shows that you went to and says, mm. oh yeah, how long, they played for three and a half hours, didn't they? Well, you always remember it incorrectly. Uh, so I, I, I generally use that to refresh my memory. But this show, I will never forget. Uh, first, for a couple of reasons. First, Garbage opened. Uh, and was the opening act and garbage was outstanding to the point about, you know, kind of the changing tone of music at that point. Mm. Uh, this was, this was, uh, when the first garbage album came out, Shirley Manson was amazing. Butch Big was doing his thing. Yeah. They put, they played 55 minutes. That was just tight and second to none. Then Smashing Pumpkins come out, and as a bit of a, uh, a bit of a background to that, I've seen I've seen the Pumpkins five times, and I am a, I at the time was a huge huge Smashing Pumpkins fan. Uh, I'd seen them tour for Gish, I'd seen them tour for Siamese Dream three times, and then I saw them, and then I was seeing this melancholy show. Anyway, anyway. They start playing 12 songs in Billy gets angry as someone in the pit and decides that he's done. Uh, they had just played bullet with butterfly wings and they played muzzle and Billy storms off the stage. We were about 42 minutes into the show. About is this the uh, December 18th set list? Yes. Yes. Okay, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. So they come out. Uh, they come back out after a few minutes of us, you know, cheering and cheering and cheering. And Billy comes out and says some expletives to people. And they play XYU. 
Uh, All right. (laughs) If you're mad, that's a good song to play. Yeah, but they only kind of play it. You know, the rest of the band is kind of playing the song. Billy's just kind of riffing and only half singing. (laughs) Okay. And then he throws down his guitar and leaves again. And at this point, the 12,000 people in the arena are like, what's going on here? So another few minutes go by. Billy comes out and they start into 1979. And Billy yells to the crowd, oh, this is all you effing wanted to hear anyway. And they start into it. But instead of actually singing the song, he does like the first verse. Okay. Uh, and then after the first verse, he starts while the while the beat loop is playing in the background. He starts playing Inagata Devita, <laughs> which if you're young and don't know Inagata Devita, yes. go listen. Great classic seven sixty seventy song. Also, if you have uh, twenty minutes to set aside, there you go. And what happens after that is he plays for another. 25 minutes. And what I love is on if you go to setlist.fm and look at this, there are the encore three it talks yes. about. Yeah. Uh, they didn't actually play those songs. That was just part of Billy standing out there r- riffing, which essentially was him trying to play as badly as he could for as long as he could while yelling at the, st- while yelling at the arena about how poorly they had treated him and talking about the fans don't understand him all while playing this feedback laden guitar. Uh, the reason I think they call it encore three is because James and Darcy actually left the stage for about 10 minutes oh, okay. and then come <laughs> and then they, and then they come back anyway. So, so did they try to hold down the riffs for aeroplane and silver fuck? They tried, but (laughs) Billy wasn't playing. Fair enough. Uh, So finally, Billy throws his guitar in the air, walks off, and James actually sang part of Silverfuck. Oh, cool. Uh, So they they did play, you know, a little bit of it. Uh, Okay. and And James pulled a Noel Gallagher and sang the rest of the song after Billy Nay Liam uh stormed <laughs> off stage so what the the kind of end of this is i had gone to the show with two of my best friends we were in the we were in the pit uh listening to it because even though i was gonna review it i still was a fan so i you know went right, down to right. the pit. uh it turned out that my uh it turned out that my girlfriend and one of her friends had actually gotten tickets that night and driven out there and saw us in the pit, uh, and had gotten lost in, uh, South central LA before they got there. So that's a okay. separate story. But yeah. <laughs> we meet up, we meet up with them at Denny's afterward. Uh, and I wrote a review that was honest. Uh, I believe the lead of the review was, uh, 47 minutes, 47 freaking minutes. And uh, went on from there. And it was the point where I got my first death threat as a journalist. Fun. Yeah. So I write this review the next day. I uh, gets in the paper, got picked up by other papers, and I got a death threat. 
handwritten, came to the newsroom, said uh, if they ever saw me on the street, they were going to take care of me. And it said that they should uh, that I should go back to listening to music that's more my speed, like Garth Brooks. <laughs> Had you at any point reviewed Garth Brooks in the pages of that paper? No. Odd. Okay. <laughs> so this will always be a point where uh, this will always been in my montage as uh, as kind of a lesson that you're your heroes will, you know, your heroes will always disappoint you. And also that, uh, journalism, being a journalist is a weird and dangerous occupation. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> so there you go. The look on your face says, uh, says I kind of hit you with one on this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the, Look, I understand fandom. I understand being so into something that, like, you only want to read the good about it. But, right. like, a death threat over a constant review? Really? Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, I, can't. I, that, saved, I, saved, I saved the letter for years. Not to downplay, you know... Not, not to give you an existential crisis about the importance of your work, but the pumpkins are going to be fine regardless of that review, people are probably still going to go see them. People have still gone to see them. Yep. I have too. I mean, I even have, I went and saw them a few years ago. Um, So even though, even though I'm a huge fan of the completist, um, I have seen the smashing pumpkins. I have seen Billy Corgan and Jimmy Chamberlain on the stage together. Those are two different dates. Yes. I saw the Billy and the kids line up uh, at the tower theater in Philadelphia and I saw Zwan at uh, Hammerstein Ballroom, and they melted my face off. <laughs> I never saw Zwan. Uh, they were during that was that period of Billy's life was when I had little kids, gotcha. and so I was more likely to go to a Wiggles concert than Zwan. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, they're really good. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't have the comparison of the original Pumpkins lineup, but. I mean, they were yeah. jammy. Uh, Matt Sweeney's a really good guitar player. Yeah. Uh, David Pajo's really great on stage. Um, Puzzle Shannon has stage presence for days. And it's Billy and Jimmy. What else could you want? Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, to be honest, uh, my, you know, as a side note to all this, I was always, I always felt like James was the unsung hero of... Uh, Smashing Pumpkins. I felt like his playing style uh, was way undersold by Billy. And so it's funny that you should say that because okay. in, in all the press surrounding the you know big reunion uh, when the when Shiny Nosebright came out. Yep. Um, I remember reading an interview from Billy's perspective. He said that at one point during the production, Rick Rubin turned to him and goes, "Oh, I get it." James smooths out the metal. Yeah. Yeah. James. Yeah. Cause Billy can play three chord stomp. Billy can play crazy with the feedback, but James, and you especially hear it in Gish. James yeah. was what made James was what made those rhythmic undertones happen. You know, mm-hmm. you listen to songs like uh rhinoceros and you just hear James make that better. Um, so 
no, I, I, I always feel like he's my, you know, he was always my, my pumpkins MVP or wait, wouldn't that be my most valuable pumpkin? There you go. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah. So, so that my montage got a little dark there, uh, but you know, I, I, the funny thing about it is you have these moments in your life where you learn something about uh, the world around you. You don't necessarily learn more about yourself. Right. And, you know, this was a great episode that I will never, every time I hear this song, I think about, oh, God. Here what we you want to hear. The, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I literally don't listen to this song. I, I hardly ever listen to this song again uh, or on my own or when it pops up on, you know, Apple Music or, uh, you know, in Sirius XM and 1979 plays. I'm kind of like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So with, with last week's episode, we talked a lot about how the song kind of got picked up and moved by other bands into different directions. Um, but when I was taking a look around to see, you know, has anybody else taken on this song? It's a lot. Everybody kind of wants to take it almost into an REM vibe where it's yep. a lot more jangly. Um, yeah. And I get that from, from like just, you know, following the guitar line and all that. I, I understand the impulse there, um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just not as good. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's, it's such a good song on its face that I, I'm surprised that it hasn't been taken the many different directions that please, please, please. Has been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think, you know, every time I think about it, it's one of those songs that just kind of, and I think this goes to its cross went to its crossover appeal as well. It just it, it wasn't you know a beige song, but hmm. there's not there's not much that you can really play with in it and make it sound significantly different than it was. You know, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't fit otherwise. Yeah, it's a bit, like even if you were to take some of like like the keyboard filigree that happens um, in the chorus and in the bridge, mm-hmm. there's, it's, it's, it's all musical color. It's not mm-hmm. anything melodic that you could really pick up and carry, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in the way that you could take, say the mandolin part from please, 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 and kind of make that the song or take, right. you know, just the Mar um, legato licks or, you know, even, you know, take the block chords and move them over to another instrument. Right. And, you know, I've, I've always thought that, uh, I've always thought that it would actually be interesting at going even more electronic, Mm. uh, turning into something, you know, turning into something more like that. But, uh, you know, I guess we'll never really know unless someone decides to do a mashup with, uh, you know, funky drummer or something like that. (laughs) I mean, and it's not like you could, you can't really deconstruct it either because there's not really much there other than that, other, other than that drum line, you know, um, and the the drum, you know, it's, it's a single drum line, a single riff, uh, a rather narrow, a rather narrow vocal range. You know, it all fits that, like I said, it all fits that, the banal lyric that goes along with it. Yeah. It's it's kind of capturing like 
that weird hazy orange, yeah. you know, summertime golden hour. Yeah. And now I've, now I've used the word banal on this podcast twice. So there you go. kudos to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think to what the obvious follow-up to that song is, um, you know, perfect off of a door and yeah. While that song's great, I think what falls apart for it as far as reaching the heights that 1979 does is there's too many moving parts. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And uh, so, you know, it's a great, it's a, it, it is a great song of its time. Uh, it's part of a great series, you know, great kind of landscape of music in that period. But for me, it will always be the song that uh, showed me how bad Billy can be when he wants to be. And with that, folks, we thank you very much for tuning in. This has been My Life as a Montage. Uh, we will be back to you in another two weeks. Uh, until then, may all your montages play, play to sunlight. Thank you for listening to My Life as a Montage. I've been Keith Campbell, joined by Ian Shaker here. Our intro and interstitial music has been Funny Animals by Crowander. It was found on freemusicarchive.org and is being used under Creative Commons. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, I'm